Welcome back to SEC Football Unfiltered, our podcast from the USA Today Network. I'm Blake Topmeyer, along with John Adams. The college football season is upon us. We have some week zero games starting this week. So John and I, never one to miss an opportunity for preseason pontifications, we'll be getting into some last-minute musings, I guess, before the the season kicks off. And then uh, later in the episode, Tom Hart, the play-by-play broadcaster of the Saturday night game of the week on the SEC Network, will join the show to offer his thoughts on the upcoming season, plus some dining recommendations and travel wrecks. And Tom will discuss his golden tea skills. So all sorts of stuff with a little football mixed in. That'll be in segment two. Uh, of the episode after the break. But uh, first, John, season gets started this week, including an SEC game, Vanderbilt-Hawaii, kicking off at 10.30 Eastern time. I know we're both kind of night owls. Do you think you'll be able to stay up for that clash of of titans? Ooh, I I do think it's appropriate that Vanderbilt is playing in week zero. (laughs) Uh, But it's, who knows, this could be the budding of a great longstanding rivalry. Um, Hawaii and Vanderbilt. Could you could you get match up two schools with more different than than those two? I mean, I, I shouldn't say that. I don't know what Hawaii's academic standards are. Uh, I like the view a lot better than I do in Nashville, though. Do you got any you know big plans for it, or you know everybody makes like Super Bowl plans? Maybe they go to parties. They they have some some fun food, desserts, all kinds of stuff. Are you, you got anything on tap for, for the Hawaii game? Uh, probably, uh, I would probably watch that in my bed. And, uh, I know that's not very exotic, but I would, uh, in fact, I would even have my CPAP on and that little nose mask on while I'm watching. I'll have to turn the volume up a little louder just in case I nod off at some point. I mean, I, but you're right. I mean, I can stay up late, but that's probably what, what time do you think that game will end? Ooh, um, about 1am maybe No, late, no later, later than that. Probably, yeah, probably one thirty-two. probably about two o'clock, probably about yeah, two, two o'clock. o'clock. Eastern time. I, I'm good to one thirty, but after that, then it gets kind of dicey. You know, I saw an article, uh, in the, in the Tennessee and our, our USA Today network brethren recently that, uh, a Hawaii support staffer, it's like Hawaii's director of player development or something, said that Vanderbilt, they don't know what they're getting into here. And he, he can't wait for the moment when Vanderbilt comes out in that stadium. I, I almost thought that should be turned its, on its head a little bit. Like maybe Hawaii doesn't know what it's getting into with Vanderbilt coming into their stadium. Um, I, I doubt uh, Hawaii is familiar with Anchor Down. I think mean, that can send tremors through an opponent when those they hear those two words anchored down. Uh oh, what does that mean? Yeah, having plenty of anchors is helpful yes. too when you're playing in an island state. So you can <laughs> set up anchor, set up you're, shop wherever you want around the island. You're doing a good. You're all. You're getting me to the point where I think I'm going to watch that game. All right. Good. We can yeah. break it down next week, but okay. uh, yeah. Yeah, with the with, with the season almost upon us, John, want to do some some final musings, some final predictions here. Uh, we're going to do it a little different 
this week, though. Want to be more rapid fire mode. You know, in football, they always talk about how do you handle pressure? How do you react under pressure? Now, you spent several years covering maybe one of the biggest statues in the pocket the SEC has seen in recent years. And Jarrett Garantano, a former Tennessee quarterback, you spent several years watching him as the columnist for the Knoxville News Sentinel. So you know what not to do. You don't want to just stand there and hold the ball in the pocket forever and get sacked. I've adjusted down to the Josh Heupel era. What What is, I mean, it's rapid fire. You've got your M16. I'm sorry. I, you know, I frame a lot of things with the military from my experience there as a veteran. And yeah, I've got my M16 on rapid fire and I'm ready to go. All right, here we go. First question for you, John. Which team has the best chance of upsetting Alabama during the regular season? Texas A&M. Okay. Why do you like the Aggies? I just think everybody's going the other way with that game and saying, boy, Alabama's going to punish Texas A&M about the rift between Nick Saban and Jimmy Fisher, Jimbo Fisher, and they're coming to Tuscaloosa, and Alabama lost to them last year. It's going to be payback. Sometimes those things go the other way. So I'm going to go against the grain here and pick the Aggies. I think the Aggies, not to win, I'm just saying of all the opponents, I don't really see, I don't know who would be second. I don't know who I would pick next. Maybe, gosh, LSU, uh, Ole Miss with Elaine Kiffin has given them trouble in the past. But I still still say Texas A&M. All right. I, I probably like either Arkansas at home or LSU at home better. But that's like you said, you're going against the grain. So yes. question two, Georgia. Now they lost all these, this star power in the NFL draft. Will the Bulldogs once again, though, lead the SEC in scoring defense? Yes or no? Yes. Georgia's secondary could be better. Kelly Ringo at cornerback had a great championship game, had the pivotal interception. Jalen Carter, to me, is the best lineman in the SEC, or an early first-round draft pick. Uh, they've got some They've got some guys coming. Uh, Jamar Dumas-Jones or Johnson, whatever his name is, he – He's a linebacker that would, uh, I think, could wreak havoc. We just hadn't heard much about him yet. So, yeah, I, I don't think anybody will beat that defense. You know how hard it is to repeat as a Heisman winner. Alabama brings the Heisman winner back. True or false, Bryce Young will repeat as Heisman winner. False. There's too much history to the contrary. You just don't win that award twice. C.J. Stroud at Ohio State was a finalist last year. He has more offensive weapons than Bryce does. Uh, so I, I think C.J. Stroud is – and he's a betting favorite, and I think he should be. He's He's got all the weapons. He's got all the surrounding talent. Nothing wrong with Bryce Young, and Alabama's talent is pretty good, but I just think in terms of offensive weapons, I like what Stroud has. All right, we're going to stick with quarterbacks and stick with true or false for the next one. True or false, Mississippi State quarterback Will Rogers will lead the SEC in passing. I guess passing, I would say yes. If you say, are you talking passing yards or completions? Let's go, uh, or, let's go passing yards, yes. 
I think he will. I mean, how much are they going to throw, uh, run the ball? I mean, it, they might throw it 50 times a game. They run as a secondary choice, but, uh, yeah, they're all about throwing the ball. And I really like, we both do. We really like Will Rogers. Very accurate. I think he's an underrated quarterback. His receivers down. This is just as important as receivers are familiar with that, that system. So, uh, yeah, I think this could be a good year for Mississippi state. I think Mississippi state's going to beat some is going to upset some better teams this year. All right. Shifting from quarterbacks to the coaching hot seat. Will Brian Harson be Auburn's football coach on December 1st? Not a chance. How many commitments does he have? About seven. Uh, I just, I, I don't see it in the West. Who's he going to beat? I like that. That one wasn't just a no. It's not a chance. No, that, that was a, that was a hard no, as they say. Yeah, maybe yeah. I should have turned the clock up to November first instead of December first. You might have had a harder time answering. Yes, I would have. That. There would have been a delay, definitely. All right, let's we'll see if you have a harder time with this one, John. Perhaps for different reasons, but will Lane Kiffin be Ole Miss's football coach on February first? Yes, I think he will, and that's not a hard yes. I just thought Lane Kiffin's chance to move was last year. I thought LSU could have hired him. I thought Florida could have hired him. I, I would have been on board with both of those hires. According uh, to you, Auburn's going to be open now. I don't know right now if I'd rather be at Ole Miss or Auburn. Could Lane Kiffin put down roots? That's something we never associate with him. I tell you the job that could be open is Florida State. Like I said, this is not a, will he be the coach in February? That's not a hard yes. That's that's a really good question. I wouldn't want to make a bet on that. And I specifically chose February, John, because we know from his past at Tennessee, he's not necessarily going to leave as soon as the season's over. He might wait around for a little bit, wait until no. recruiting's about finished, and then and then leave. Yeah, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of like That's those, Lane's uh, history. He says he's a changed man. I, I kind of believe he's a changed man, but still, you mentioned that Florida State might be a tempting opportunity. Yeah, and that's like one of those delayed blitzes. Guys don't come right away. They got to just sit back there, and the quarterback's feeling comfortable, and boom, here they come. All right, we're going back to quarterbacks for the next two. Now, you define this however you want. I'm not going to set parameters on the definition here. But which quarterback will have a better season, Will Levis at Kentucky or Anthony Richardson at Florida? Will Levis. Is that I'm because just, you think Richardson's going to be hurt? He's injury yes. prone, or you just okay. yeah? I, I'm, and I tell you what, the way Will Levis, he's got that Tim Tebow thing going where he likes running over linebackers or trying to run over them, so he's in harm's way too, and they're going to rely so heavily on them. They have, they don't have a proven backup. Bo Allen transferred, so I don't know what they'll do if he get. They may put a wide receiver back there and go wildcat, but Anthony Richardson, he's just had too many. Not devastating injuries, but there's just always to be, seems to be something off physically. And in, in Billy Napier's offense, he likes his quarterback to carry the ball. And and I'm watching Louisiana last year. I mean, his quarterback would carry the ball between ta the tackles sometimes, too. He took some hits. All right, we're sticking with quarterbacks. Same framework for this question. I think this one's going to challenge you. Who will have a better season? Hinden Hooker at Tennessee or Spencer Rattler at South Carolina? I'll go Hinden Hooker at Tennessee by the narrowest of margins. I think they both will have great seasons. 
Spencer Rattler has got really good receivers. Hendon Hooker's got seven of their offensive starters back. If Tennessee gets Brew McCoy, this Southern California transfer, eligible at wide receiver, and I think it will, but the NCAA just, even if they know what the decision's going to be, they, even they, it's as though they make up their mind and said, okay, we'll announce it in three weeks. They don't like to rush things. You know how it works. So I think he will become eligible, and I think he could be a big asset in that offense because everybody's going to be trying to gang up on Cedric Tillman, who had a great year last year. So that that's a really tough call. I, th- I think both of them will be really successful. If someone reaches Atlanta for the SEC championship, that's not named Alabama or Georgia. Who's the most likely team to get to Atlanta behind those two? Texas a and I don't like that pick. I don't like that answer, but I was under duress. I mean, the guys are crashing down on me. I, you know, my blockers had failed me. I, I just had to make a decision, so I panicked, really. Uh, I that panicked. was almost the intentional grounding to avoid a sack. You just you yeah. just flung it. Maybe like that I, Max Johnson behind the yeah. back pass. <laughs> I just threw it out there to the sidelines, hoping he got there without a defender jumping up and catching it. Yeah, because I, I don't feel good about that. That was a – I mean, do you – who would no, you No, I actually think if, so, if there's going to be a surprise team in Atlanta – I actually think it might come from the East, not because I think the third best team in the SEC is in the East, but because I don't see anyone other than Alabama coming out of that gauntlet in the West. Like someone might beat Alabama in a head-to-head, but I I still don't trust them to get to Atlanta. Much like last year, Alabama lost a head-to-head with A&M, but Alabama goes to Atlanta. I think, you know, if there's going to be a surprise team, it's going to come from the easier division, which would be the East. Someone upsets Georgia. And so maybe it's tied with Georgia in the stand. Maybe they lose somewhere else, but they're tied with Georgia with one loss in the standings and they have the head-to-head tiebreaker. That's not what I think will happen. But, uh, yeah, I'd say someone like uh, like a Kentucky or a Tennessee. Kentucky's got got a very manageable schedule. I know you're not as high on the Cats as the voters are, uh, but their schedule does set up nicely. If they could upset Georgia, if Tennessee could upset Georgia, you know, there's a path where they could still lose an SEC game and have the tiebreaker and get to Atlanta. So that's that's where I would have gone, but I, I had time to think about it. You were oh, facing yeah. blitzing if, linebackers. If you'd have given me seven or eight more seconds, I would have probably said Tennessee and, and South Carolina. I agree with your logic on the East. Uh, because even if you upset Alabama, you still got to go through that schedule in the West. And it's just so challenging. I mean, some people would say Kentucky. Kentucky, and I think in the uh, SEC media days in uh, in Atlanta, Kentucky was second. I just don't see that. Uh, we've seen Chris Rodriguez, their their star running back, is suspended for what the first two games, is it? Uh, so they rely on heavily rely on him heavily. They don't have as much depth as they usually do at that position. So, and they don't have any protection. A quarterback, if Will Levis goes down, so I just I'm just not a a huge proponent of, ten, of Kentucky having a a great year. All right, back to your Aggies, John. Mm-hmm. Since you've, mm-hmm. you've gone all in on them, uh, will Texas A and M win at least ten games in the regular season? No. All right, I think you're, it will you're win. Cool, you're cooling. I think well, cooling on the yeah. Eggs. I mean, it, and. 
that's an easier question. I, I think because it's in the West, and I think it, it will win nine games. I think okay. that would ten's not terribly far fetched, but I still don't know who the quarterback's going to be. I'm. It's looking more like Haynes King, I guess, and I'm kind. I'm a proponent of uh, Mad Max uh, Johnson there at uh, the transfer from LSU. I'm a, I don't see anything wrong with that guy. And I just saw Haynes King in one game in which he was injured last year, and he was not impressive at all before he was injured. So that's my only basis for an opinion on him. Who will be named SEC Coach of the Year? Josh Heupel. I barely got, I barely got that pass away, didn't I? Yeah, I almost there called the clock lot. on you on that one. The, the, the offensive line must have offered you – it might have, must have been like a seven-man protection there. They kept the tight end and the running back in to help protect you. Well, and, and see the way Tennessee runs its offense. Quarterback doesn't take a deep drop, and and I took a deep drop because I needed the time. And, and Hendon Hooker just takes a couple of steps, just raises up and gets rid of the ball. And, uh, yeah, you, you caught me on that one. My blockers – it failed me. I'd be cringing in pain, writhing in pain on the ground there. All right. Two teams did not that did not start the season ranked, John. Tennessee and LSU will either or both finish the year in the top 25. Both will. Little hesitation. I figured you'd say there. Tennessee would since you have Hypo as your coach of the year, but yeah, I didn't Tennessee. know if you'd go with both. I tell you what concerned me about LSU. If you'd asked me this question a week and a half ago, or even just a week ago, and and would LSU make top twenty-five, I would have said definitely. I'm just when when Miles Brennan retired, it's hard to think of a guy twenty-three or whatever he is retiring, but he's he's done with football. I really thought going into the preseason he would be the quarterback, and so now it could be Doug Nussmeyer and Jaden Daniels, and I think LSU would be in a lot better shape if it's Nussmeyer because I trust his arm more than I do Jaden Daniels. So, yeah, if you'd have broken that down, if you'd asked, well, will LSU make top 25 with Jaden Daniels at quarterback? I would have said no, and I would have been quick to answer. I got you. All right. But I, I left Jaden Daniels out of it, so. Yes, it was a tough call, yeah. Okay. I think okay. I'm slowing down. Is this goes All right. Well, this, this last one here, rapid fire mode, John. Uh-huh. Season gets underway for the SEC with Vanderbilt Saturday night. So we're going to finish with anchoring down with the doors. Will Vanderbilt win at least three games this season? Yes. Wow. No hesitation. Yeah. Going out on a limb for me. Well, I kind of like that schedule. It plays Elon Musk early in the season. And Elon's a smart guy, but I, I just don't see him breaking many tackles. I, I'm sorry, it's Elon in it. I get the two confused. Yeah, Elon. <laughs> yeah, so Hawaii in week one, and Elon parentheses Musk in week two. So if they could, if they could win both those, then all they need is to win their FCS game, and they and they got three. Uh, but they did lose their FCS game last year to East Tennessee, East Tennessee State. Beat them soundly. And I kind of like Hawaii's chances in this opener, so I don't know, John. You you might have more faith in Vanderbilt than I do. I might I might be putting them on 
on two wins again this season. I tell you what, the most you you know how Kentucky scheduled under Mark Stoops. It, it's really inflated its record by some clever scheduling. I guarantee you, when Mark Stoops saw that Vanderbilt was playing Elon, he said to the nearest administrative assistant, "Why the heck aren't we playing those guys? I didn't even know they had a team." Yeah, and I misspoke, John. Elon is their FCS opponent, so there's not another Elon on the schedule. That is their FCS opponent. They they really need to get to Hawaii. They need to beat Hawaii if they're going to get to three wins. They need to beat Hawaii, beat Elon Musk, and then they either got to beat Northern Illinois, Wake Forest, or someone in the SEC if they're going to get to three wins. I tell you what, Elon Musk, with his money, with his billions, he could put together – a team with an NIL package pretty fast that could maybe beat Vanderbilt. You give a guy two weeks, he could get him in uniform and get him out there on the field. All right, John and I will take a break and be back with the interview with Tom Hart. Hi, this is Blake Topmeyer, host of the SEC Football Unfiltered podcast. Along with my co-host, John Adams, we've been coming to you every week for more than a year now. Thank you to those who have been with us from the beginning, and if you're just finding us, we hope you'll tune in throughout this season. When we launched this podcast, we had the goal of having fun. We want to entertain as well as inform, and we consider no topic off-limits. We'll debate anything from overrated teams, coaches on the hot seat, and whether John got swindled when he sold his 20-year-old Honda. While we revel in the banter, we're not big on shouting or talking over each other, This is a podcast for debate rather than noise. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll consider clicking subscribe or follow so you won't miss an episode, and we'd appreciate your rating or review. Those ratings and reviews help us find more listeners. As always, thank you for listening. And we are back. Pleased to be joined now by Tom Hart. You know Tom as your play-by-play voice on SEC Saturday night on the SEC Network, of course, college football is not all he does. You can also hear him on the SEC Network and and throughout ESPN, calling college basketball, college baseball. Tom, thanks for thanks for joining. You are one of my absolute favorite broadcasters, and I don't just say that because you're joining the podcast. But <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, I know, right? But no, truly, I mean, I like your style. You know, you're you're well prepared. You're not screaming and shouting over people all the time. You know, just smooth style, well delivered. Who's kind of an, maybe an inspiration for you, or where, where do you think your style came from? Well, that's a great question. I grew up in Missouri, and there's so many great broadcasters throughout the state, kind of on either end. Obviously, uh, my age, anybody my age remembers Jack Buck, probably more so than Joe. Uh, what he did with the Cardinals and his national work with CBS Radio and uh, a lot of television work that was kind of understated also. And then I've always been a huge college sports fan, you know, growing up in Columbia, Missouri, a college town, and not just watching the Mizzou teams that I had a rooting interest for back then, but but all of college sports. And, and a lot of guys, I think, that I looked up to that are still in the business today that have been so helpful to me. Sean McDonough would be one. Brad Nessler is another. And so the descriptor you used a moment ago, they're not screamers. They're very basic play-by-play guys. You know, their voices will rise when the moment calls for it, but they're not going to be screaming in the first quarter. What I was always taught is that um, your voice should match the energy on the field. Your enthusiasm should be as well. But if you 
peak in the first quarter, then you have nowhere to go in the fourth quarter when the game is on the line. So that was always interesting to me from a teaching standpoint. And Nestler, who I've looked up to for a long time, always had this, I don't know, this this feel of that's the guy I want to go to the bar with on Friday night and pick his brain about, you know, what he's learned from coaches and what he expects in the game because he's so smooth on the game and this kind of velvet rope feel is I got that from Jack Buck, by the way, too. Like Jack Buck and Mike Shannon were the two coolest guys in all of broadcasting and in all of baseball. And the thought was, if I could just hang out with them for a day, how much fun would that be? So I, I like to make sure that our, our broadcast, especially in college football, yeah, we obviously focus on the game, but there's also this idea that, hey, we're three guys that you'd want to go to dinner with Friday night and talk about the game and see what's going on on campus and kind of Im- immerse yourself in, in the entire experience. That's what people want, right? That's why people – go back to the alma mater for games is to get back on campus to feel that energy and to uh, to run into people that they want to hang out with. It's interesting. You mentioned Jack Buck. I'm a, like you, I'm a native Midwesterner. I'm from central Illinois. So in between Cardinal and Cub country there, but certainly uh, uh, yeah, enjoyed listening to, to Jack Buck. So that one, that one hits home. That's a, that's a good example there. Uh, now, now fans know you now, Tom, as, as the guy calling college sports to him, but of course, many years ago, maybe not that many, we don't want to date you too much, but years ago, uh, you started out calling minor league baseball games, you know, yeah. Cap- Capital City Bombers and, and Columbia, South Carolina, right? Was your, yeah. your start? Yeah, that was my first gig, yeah. Yeah, and then Winston-Salem, and of course, Tennessee Smokies, where you were a decorated broadcaster there outside Knoxville. Um, anything you miss about life on the road in minor league baseball? And it's entirely okay to say, no, nothing I miss <laughs> about minor league baseball. <laughs> I, you know, you can't help but develop relationships with people when you're around them every single day. Um, so I think the idea of being immersed in a sport where you know the ins and outs, maybe more so than, than anyone could imagine. Yeah, one of the first teams I worked with at the AA level was a Cardinals affiliate. And I kind of, as I mentioned with Jack Buck, I grew up in Missouri. I was a bit of a Cardinals fan. And on our first team, we had this left-handed pitcher by the name of Rick Ankeel, who was trying to mount a comeback to the big leagues, and a young catcher by the name of Yadier Molina. And seeing those guys up close, their work ethic, their desire, their drive, Ankeel had been there, and he's trying to get back, and he knew exactly what it took to get there. And, and Yadier was just trying to get a feel for who he was as a catcher and as a player. In fact, our first road trip, we were leaving Knoxville and we were going over the mountains on our way to Zebulon, North Carolina, just outside of Raleigh. And there was some commotion that morning in the back of the bus. And our 18-year-old catcher from Puerto Rico was pressed up against the window looking out amongst the trees in the mountains. It was the first time he'd ever seen snow. So, I, I, And it was a great reminder, like, this is just a kid. Like, he may be on the start of, of what was expected to be a great Big league career, maybe a good one. Nobody, I think, predicted to be a Hall of Famer, and he was 18 uh, or one of the best catchers ever, but he was he was still just a kid. So that experience taught me a lot um, from a relationship standpoint. When you're with the team every day to respect the players, the work that they put in, how hard the job is, and to understand that they're people too and that you can't just look at them as a stat or, you know, a, a number – um, that there's uh, there's a name and there's a family behind that. And the same thing goes for for umpires uh, and referees. That those are people. They're not just 
these uh, characters in a video game and getting to know everyone in and around the game, I think treats, uh, it gives you the opportunity to learn how to treat everyone within the game with a, a lot of respect. So that was the experience I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade for anything. You, you now call football, basketball, baseball. Of those three, which is maybe the hardest to do as a, as a play-by-play guy? The hardest for me right now is is Major League Baseball. I'll do a handful of games. Uh, our opening weekend, I'll be in Tennessee Thursday night, Alabama Saturday night. Sunday, I'll fly back to Atlanta, trade out my luggage, go to New York, and do Yankees Twins on ESPN Radio on Monday afternoon. And it's it's not hard from a mechanical standpoint. It's it's a bit like riding a bike. But to me, Major League Baseball or baseball in general is a sport where you, you kind of, to be great at it, you have to be in it every day. And so to parachute in and do one game a month or a game every few weeks means you have to prep a lot more. So that makes it a little bit more difficult. I love it. I, I love going to the ballpark. I was just with Tim Kirkchen a couple of weeks ago doing a game. who just got enshrined in, uh, in Cooperstown and honored there. And the rhythm of baseball is totally different. The ins and outs, the stress level. Football coaches are notoriously paranoid, right? You go in and you ask questions about specific players or injuries, and they're going to look over their shoulder and make sure that, you know, if you don't have a relationship with them already, you can be trusted. You go into a big league clubhouse and you sit down with Buck Showalter and you ask him, hey, man, when's DeGrom's coming back? How good is he going to be? You get all the information you could possibly hope for. And so that that's very much enjoyable to sit down and just kind of shoot the bull with those guys. But it's it's hard if you don't do it regularly because there's 30 teams that you're expected to know all the ins and outs on roster moves, injuries, trends, who's hot, who's not. So it calls for a lot more preparation. So much evolution right now in, in college sports, and there's so many things that we could talk about there. But the, the one that interests me most is, is the conference realignment. Um, you're a guy that you, know, you grew up with the Big Eight Conference, really, yeah. and and now conferences are are growing. Your alma mater, uh, Missouri, has been in the the SEC for for a decade now, along with Texas A and M. Got Texas and Oklahoma coming aboard here in a in a couple to a few years. As conferences are are growing, uh, what's your thought on that? I mean, do you miss it all the the days of the Big Eight, the eight to ten the eight to ten team conferences, um, or, or what do you think about these these bigger leagues now? And and you got Missouri in the SEC, and in a couple of years, you know, another old Big Eight school like Oklahoma is going to be in the league. That's good in terms of reuniting some of those old rivalries and histories that we've lost. Uh, Texas, Texas A&M, chief among them, obviously, continuing Oklahoma, Texas. One of Missouri's greatest wins, by the way, when uh, just, you know, 15 years ago or so was when Oklahoma came to Missouri and game day was in town, and, and Missouri knocked them off, went to the Big 12 championship, ended up number one in the country towards the end of that season that there's history there and and that's great so to your point what i miss is i don't miss the history of oh when we were one and they were five or there's a top 10 match like people remember that what i miss are the the intricacies of the relationships that go back you know generations missouri and iowa state playing for the telephone trophy, right? Who, who knows about the telephone trophy, the telephone game? But it was information's passed down through generations and you get to know those schools and the players that came through there. So when you start fresh, there's a lot of, um, of relationship building that has to occur. I, it's a matter of progress. And I think 
both the SEC and the Big Ten are doing the right things for their for their partners and therefore for their fan bases. I mean, they're giving them security, and, and that's great. I don't know where this whole thing ends up. I don't know if there ends up being the the super haves and the have nots where schools are completely left out of what they could be uh, experiencing or what they've had have experienced from a uh, conference standpoint. I don't know, Blake, it's, it's hard. Um, there's, there's pros and cons to, to all of this movement. I think from my perspective, I think we're just lucky to be involved with the SEC and to be a Missouri grad, to be on the right side of it, because you very well could be on the other side of it. I, I just hope that we keep a lot of the relationships and the fervor for the game that is essentially grassroots. I mean, I mean, I became a college sports fan because I lived in a college town and I was able to walk to games on a Saturday morning with my dad and my brother and, you know, walking two miles to Faroe Field and going in and watching my team. And when they were good to see the national attention that they got made us feel validated as fans, and as residents of that town, as a future student of the University of Missouri. It's grassroots at its core. And if they can find a way to keep that in college athletics and still grow, that's great. That's fantastic. And I think there's a lot of money to be made and a lot of money to be shared in this industry. It's just a matter of staying real and true to your roots. And it's a, it can be a delicate balance. There's no doubt about it. I mean, it's been disrupted over the years by television start times, which I directly benefit from, uh, full disclosure, not being as fan friendly as they used to be, but I think something that everybody grew to become accustomed to. And if that means that your team can be on in prime time, and you can reach a wider audience and you can build new fans and you can get students from out of state who want to come to your campus because they like the way it looks on ESPN at 7:30 or on ABC or whatever network it airs on. Everybody benefits from that. It's just a, a very delicate balance to both grow and remain true to yourself in, in any endeavor. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned rivalry games kind of off the top there, because that to me is what I'm uh you know, like you, I maybe see some some pros and cons of, of some of this, some challenges and some benefits. But, uh, you know, with, with Texas and Oklahoma coming in, it, restoring in particular, as you said, Texas-Texas A&M as a rivalry game, that was always one of my favorite games around Thanksgiving. Um, you know, I just enjoyed it. Like, sometimes they'd play it on, on the Friday after Thanksgiving. You got your Thanksgiving yeah. leftovers, Texas A&M. And, and you mentioned Missouri-Oklahoma. I, I, I've mentioned that before, and some people are surprised, like, it's not a rivalry game. I know it was one-sided for the most part, that series. It, it, it heavily favors uh, Oklahoma. But for a Missouri fan, that's that's a rivalry game. O- Oklahoma's a, a rivalry game. So, yeah, I agree with you. I, I think the rivalry aspect of it, that's, to me, maybe the most ex- exciting part about it. And then, like, Arkansas, Texas, you know, you talk to Arkansas fans. I think that's a game they're looking forward to uh, on the docket every year. So, uh, yeah, I think you – you hit the nail on the on the head there, but let's also let's also remember that what this is going to allow just SEC strictly what it's going to allow Greg Sankey to do. It's going to allow him probably to push for nine conference games a year. I would guess that that's coming in the not too distant future, especially the value that brings to the TV partners. Um, but also going to a pod system, adjusting the scheduling where it's more of a conference, and that you see teams more regularly and that's how you build those relationships and you you build that history so that's that's going to be a very important part of what the sec will be going forward i'm not quite sure um to looking towards the midwest how the big 10 is going to make that model work with 
the two Southern California schools. But um, but if they can, that's the value, right? It's it's not just true rivals and, and teams that you're on par with, but just the repetition of those games in the series and developing both respect for or in some, in some instances hatred for that guy in the office who's going to wear his shirt on Friday morning and you can go in there and cringe on Monday because he beat you or you beat him. I think that's the secret to college sports success over the years. Yeah. It's interesting, Tom, and you probably are well aware of this. As as a play-by-play guy, you know, broadcasters throughout college football, throughout all sports, there are certain fan bases that when they draw that broadcaster, they're like, man, we, we got that person this week. I don't hear that with you. Like you are not like hated by a certain fan. Maybe I'm missing something. Maybe there's like actual Twitter vitriol going going your way. But it seems like you're the guy that most fan bases in the SEC are like, all right, cool. We got Tom Hart this week. That That's cool. Why does nobody dislike you, Tom? <laughs> well, I don't maybe, I, maybe I should look me. at your Twitter feed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there there's a, a healthy number of people who have an issue with everything I say during a game, but that just means that people are watching. So that's good. Um, okay. I, I, I really do. I respect you saying that because I work hard not to kiss the backsides of fan bases, but to make sure, and, and I'm not truly worried about being neutral. All I'm worried about is, is covering the game. But I think I have two things going for me in that regard. Uh, football, especially I've got Jordan Rogers and Cole Kublik on my crew and Nobody works harder. They are as educated about these teams and players through film study, through contacts, through phone calls and meetings than than anybody. So I'm not saying that they're always right or you can take their word as gospel. But if they make a mistake, it's not for lack of preparation. It's not for lack of work. And that comes out not only in the information that they have, but the confidence with which they deliver it. And, and it doesn't come without issues. There was a time not too long ago where a coach and his offensive coordinator in this league took direct issue with what Jordan had to say about the quarterback and how they were using the quarterback and how disciplined he was in the pocket. And when we finally got a chance to talk to those guys, they admitted everything that he said on air was true, that the quarterback had issues getting out of the pocket too soon and they could design better plays for him to stay in the pocket and that he's better. All this stuff happens because those guys do their homework and they watch more film. I mean, I, I love traveling with Cole, but it's a blessing and a curse because we're on a lot of 6 a.m. flights and you get on the plane at 5.15 or 5.20 and my shade is drawn and my hat is low and I just want to sleep. And I got the globe and iPad reflecting in my face because he's already watching film for the next set of teams we have. Or some random team that we'll never have. And he wants to talk to me about Iowa's offensive line. I'm like, bro, I just let me let me sleep right now. And then the second part of it, what I've tried to do, and I should have done this a lot earlier in my career, is first of all, I'm a very social guy. When I get to town, when I get to campus, I don't lock my hotel room door and study my charts for, for 10 hours at night. I, I go find the fa- my favorite restaurant, a good steakhouse, maybe go grab a beer, um, I'll walk around the area on campus or around the hotel, depending on where we're staying. And then I use those references in game. And I want people to know if you're a Missouri fan, like that's easy because I grew up there, but I've tackled Rock Quarry Road too. And if a guy has a weaving punt return, I might reference that curvy road on on the east side of campus as a reference point for how he returns the punt. 
or your favorite burger spot in Knoxville, Tennessee, I've been there and I love Litton's onion rings and I want to go back and whatever it might be. I want people to understand it. And it's easy, right? Because I do one league 99% of the time throughout the entire season, football, basketball, baseball. So um, while it can, can be kind of groundhog day-ish at times, got relationships in all of these towns. And, and so my feet have been on the same sidewalks that a lot of these students or alums have been. And I think once they understand that and they go, hey, man, like this guy loves the tacos at Fuegos too. He's, he's been there. He's been on campus. He was at our big baseball game or that basketball game where we stormed the court and we beat Auburn. Um, they, they relate to that. And it gives them a level of comfortability with the guy who is calling a game that matters a lot to them. That doesn't mean that they still won't scream and curse at the TV when I, uh, I credit their opposition for a great play or I say that a ref's call was actually correct and, and they got the replay right. They're still going to scream at me and call me an idiot. Uh, but I think it just carries a little more weight because I'm a familiar face with them. As it, you were talking food there. It's interesting because we ran into each other a couple years ago, I guess it was. We both had a game. Uh, in South Carolina, you were dining on Friday night at, at Bourbon in, in Columbia, a great, yeah. fantastic restaurant there. So I know you got good food taste. It was interesting. You know, I had like a 45-minute wait for my table. You know, we chatted a little bit, but there was no invitation to, hey, hey just join us. You could have saved me a 45-minute wait there, Tom, but you know, that, well, that, listen, that never you came. Go to, like, here's the thing. You go to a great restaurant, especially on a football weekend, you have to um, have full respect for what the restaurateurs are going for. And if you just sat down immediately and my producer picked up the tab and you got a free meal, you know, are you really going to appreciate the restaurant experience? Uh, so I think it all, it's like, it's like parking far away from a game. Like once you've done it, then you appreciate being in the stadium even more. Okay. Nice, nice cover there, Tom. Uh, <laughs> you mentioned, you mentioned some of your, your favorite haunts. Uh, you know, you don't, you don't have to give a comprehensive restaurant guide here, but is there one or two places in, in the SEC footprint where when you draw their game, you're like, awesome. I know I'm eating here on Friday night. There's a few of them and it's not just Friday night. Like I, I know, okay, when my plane le- lands, what I have time to get in before we go to our meetings or before I go to practice. And, and then you can kind of schedule it. I'm our group's concierge for, uh, for our football season. So for example, um, if I'm going into Ole Miss, I'm on the first flight out of Atlanta, I fly to Memphis and I know I'm going to land in Memphis a little bit after eight I grab a coffee at the airport. I can jump in the car and I can be at big bad breakfast after their breakfast rush get my meal in and then go start my day. And then uh, at all Miss, listen, there's a thousand restaurants you can, you can choose from any of the groceries. Uh, City Grocery right there in the square is, is probably number one. Taylor Grocery, Little Out Town. If you want to go get some catfish, that's great. Boo Ray right there in the square. Snack Bar. By the way, here's the secret. If you want to go to Big Bad Breakfast and there's a long line, go next door to Snack Bar. It's the same menu. No line, typically. Sit at the bar. Get a, get a mimosa. That's, that's how most people do it. If I'm going to College Station, we found a fantastic place last year. Cole and Jordan are big breakfast burrito guys, so they've kind of got me on that, on that track. And there's a, a beautiful restaurant in Bryan, Texas uh, called Jesse's, run by a guy named Jesse, who is an ex-con who got out of prison, who decided to – he found the Lord. He got his life right. He opened up this uh, this – Mexican restaurant that has the best breakfast burritos I've ever had. And now that's our, that's our Saturday morning stop 
whenever we're there, whether it's uh, football or if I'm there for, for basketball, I go in and say hi to Jesse, get a breakfast burrito. And I always, Friday nights at AM, I'm always at Republic Steakhouse. Like I, I, I made sure I found over the years the best steakhouses in, in every one of these towns. Um, so if, if that's what you're looking for, I got you covered. Theo's in Fayetteville. Um, in Lexington, Tony's is, is my original favorite, and the food is best at Tony's. The atmosphere is, uh, is a little bit more lively at Ruby's. If you're looking for atmosphere, that's a good spot to be. Um, but you can't, a man can't dine on red meat, red wine alone, right? I mean, the gout man is going to track you down. So Gainesville, Dragonfly Sushi, whenever we get the opportunity, hard to get in, no reservations, but uh, patience is a virtue there and it's well worth it. Well, I'll tell you what, if I got a table there and I see you come in the door, I'll, I'll give you a spot at my table. So don't, don't you worry about that. <laughs> We're talking, talking food transition to venues because one of my favorite parts of, of doing this, this, the job that I do is, is traveling to different stadiums in the SEC. Yeah. You know, oftentimes fans ask me, um, you know, who, who are you pulling for in this game? I don't care who wins, you know, or, um, you know, what, what do you think the outcome is going to be or what, what game do you want to be? Mostly I just want to be at cool venues because that, that makes my job more fun and, and enjoyable. So for you doing it, calling games, what are maybe some of the top, let's go two or three venues. Uh, and I know you'll upset the other 11 teams in the league or what have you, but your, your top couple venues to, to call a, a college football game from in the SEC. Well, I'll preface it with this. Any stadium in the SEC for a big game is the place to be, right? If you get the best game of the weekend or the best game of the year, I don't care where it is, the atmosphere is going to be off the charts. So I don't really feel like it's fair to judge the best venue or atmosphere on their best game. If you get five versus one, two, one, ten versus two, forget about it. Like, they're all going to be incredible experiences. It, it, it does not matter. So I usually judge them like, okay, what's it like on a on an average Saturday night, right? Where the home team might be ranked, but the other team might come in sub 500. Texas A&M is just different. I mean, the, the entire campus experience is different. Um, their marching band is different. The cheerleaders are different. The stadium is different. Uh, so that's, that's number one on my list. It's just a, a different experience. And I tell people that you – very rarely find that in anywhere in the United States, right? I mean, like everything's pretty homogenous now. What What's different? Well, the city of San Francisco is different. When you get a chance to go to San Francisco, go there. That's that's cool. That's different than any other big city. You know, Yankee Stadium, the new Yankee Stadium is fine, but old Yankee Stadium was different. Fenway, Wrigley, those places are are different. They stand out. A lot of cookie cutters in life. So in college football, it's rare. Okay, I haven't been to Mikey Stadium. That's that's on my list, but Mikey Stadium would be one of those where uh, you know in West Point, which would be a different experience. The rest of them can get a little homogenous. A and M is not that. So I got Texas A and M up there, and Neyland Stadium towards the top. I just uh, like I said a moment ago, I appreciate history. I love Fenway. I love Wrigley. Neyland Stadium is a historic old stadium that still has all of those same bowl uh, same bones, and it may have been resurfaced and they've got bright lights and it's pretty, but the setting right by the river and the Vol Navy is uh, is right there in terms of top game day experiences. Um, LSU at night, man, that's a, that's a different animal. Florida during the day, that's hot and steamy and fun. I could go all the way down the list, but um, I, I like those, those few at the top because 
they separate themselves with with character more so than some of the other stadiums. Yeah, we we share a couple on our list. A and M is is high for me. That, that like you said, it's a it's a unique place, and in in a cookie cutter world, it, it breaks the mold a little bit. And 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 Florida ranks up high for me too. Now I do think. I might be biased there. Like they definitely get a bump when it's like two big, you know, two highly ranked teams. When the swamp's rocking, it's hard to it's hard to top. And I, for me, it can can drop off a little bit. Maybe when the game's not as big, but but boy, yeah, when when the swamp is is cooking for a big game, it's it's uh, as about as good as it gets there. You you mentioned Neyland Stadium. Uh, now you were there for the golf ball game last year the old, <laughs> yeah. the old miss game i live in knoxville but i was actually not there i was i was on the on the road for florida lsu i thought it was going I to have, be i just want to show you i have a golf ball from the chamber of commerce in oxford that it's a titleist true field the final score is right there 31 26 so um yeah, yeah that I'll titleist a is a nicer ball that's a nicer ball than what was thrown at lane i saw the ball that was thrown at lane it is it is indeed as Cole mentioned on your broadcast, it's an old yellow range ball. So you have the nicer ball with that that title is from the from the chamber there. What was that that atmosphere like in in Neyland? Uh, you know, like I said, I wasn't there. I was at a different game that week. I was watching your guys' broadcast. Um, how would you describe the scene? Oh man, um, it was intense from the very beginning. We were down on the field before the game and. You know, obviously the backdrop to it all was was Lane returning to Knoxville. And the hate and the vitriol that came from the stands, by the way, was totally different than what came from Tennessee staffers. Um, like, here's a great example. One of the groups of people that I've, I've, I'd like to have gotten to know over the years is the equipment managers, right? They've been there for decades usually. And they've seen every head coach that has come through and they know where all the bodies are buried. But most most important is they know who treated them with respect when they're on campus. And talking with the Tennessee equipment guys, they couldn't wait to see Lane. They were so excited that he was in town. They had so much respect for him because he treated them with respect. So that was my backdrop to Lane then coming out on the field, you know, 40 minutes before kick. And the Tennessee student section as a whole granted him with a, a, cha- a chant that's probably not uh, fit for repeating here. But it was a greeting that started with an F and ended with a K. And I was surprised with the level of intensity that those students brought. Um, then I remember that when we went to lunch at about noon, the strip was full and people were tailgating and they were, you know, they were getting lubed up extra early for that game. In, in my experience, I, I've been to a lot of games at Tennessee as both a broadcaster and even as a fan when I lived in Knoxville. Um, this was a whole nother level of, hey, this is going to be a party tonight. Um, but it was there was a meanness. Like we all have that friend who we've told him, uh, had to tell him in college, like you can't drink the brown stuff anymore because he gets mm. mean. They were mean. They were mad and they were mean that night, this, this subset of the student section. So then when it devolved into throwing trash in the field, I got to admit, I wasn't terribly surprised that they're that upset. I was surprised that it carried on for 45, 48 minutes, whatever it was. Uh, I was surprised that they didn't do a better job from a game management perspective. Listen, I was a, I was a college student myself. I've been in some situations that I, my mom wouldn't have been proud of. But I knew that the second a cop put one of my friends in handcuffs, we all stopped. Like, I went to Catholic school. The second the nun brought out the ruler, 
everyone behaved. So um, I was surprised that they weren't able to rein in some of that rambunctiousness earlier. And and we repeated this on the broadcast. Tennessee still had a chance to win that game. A, they had a chance to win the game, and B, the call on the field was right. So I was um, – it's not my place to judge. So I don't want to say I was disappointed in how they acted. Um, but as a crowd and that mob mentality, um, it, it's a fan base that I have a lot of respect for normally. And I looked at them a little bit differently at the end of that night. You don't make the, the broadcast schedule. I, I don't assume that anybody thinks you do. But to clarify, you don't make the broadcast schedule. But if you did, if you could – could circle a game and say, you know what? I get to make the broadcast schedule this week, and I'm laying dibs on this game for SEC Saturday night. Which would be the game on this year's schedule that you would circle and say, dibs, folks, I got this Ooh. one? You know, as I said earlier, I grew up a college sports fan, and I have such a great, healthy respect for rivalries. And our crew has been lucky over the years to do Florida, Florida State, Georgia, Georgia Tech, and um, I just those games mean a lot to me because I know they mean a lot to the respective fan bases. I'd be tempted to go Alabama A&M because of, you know, the recent history with Jimbo and Nick. And I think it's probably going to be a pretty good game, given what happened Kyle Field last year and, and A&M's ability to, you know, to take down Alabama. But it has, it's got to be the Iron Bowl. I mean, I don't care what anybody's record is. That's a rivalry game that uh, is a centerpiece every college football season for a lot of different reasons. And, and Auburn, you know, really showed why last year. It's, it, that game always delivers. It always draws a, a big audience. Um, you know, you said earlier you don't, you don't root for one side or another. As broadcasters, we don't either. We root for close games. And what that means is, you root for games that matter, uh, that matter not just to those fan bases, but the better game you can get means it, it matters more on a national scale. Um, that would be that would be right there. And I also I think it'd be interesting to see if we had the chance to do the Iron Bowl, um, not just how Cole Kublik would be treated by the Alabama side, but the emotions that would be bubbling around on his inside. He's he's a pro. He knows how to stay neutral but he would just be fighting the demons in his head in that game because I know how much that rivalry means to him. You mentioned Alabama, the, the widespread assumption, and it's my assumption as, as well, is that it's going to be Alabama and Georgia uh, again in Atlanta for the SEC championship, and then quite possibly they both the, the college football playoff regardless of what happens there. But if there is one team that can wreck that Alabama-Georgia party this year and get to Atlanta – who do you think that that one team could be other than Alabama and Georgia that could be in Atlanta? That's a re- it's a really tough question because if if you asked me which team or teams out there could knock off either one of those programs on any given Saturday, we could be talking for a while. I mean, there's a lot of weapons out there and and anything that can happen on a on a Saturday afternoon or a Saturday evening but to make it to Atlanta, not only do you have to beat that team, but you have to beat pretty much everybody else on your schedule, barring tiebreakers, right? So I just don't see anybody else in the West having the strength to win every game, to be focused enough and the depth to win the division over Alabama. Could Arkansas beat Alabama? Yeah, and, and I, think, um, I think A&M could beat Alabama in a single game. They proved it last year. 
I think Arkansas has the weapons to pull off uh, a win over Alabama in a single game. They just don't have the, the depth and the quarterback play and the coaching at an elite level like Alabama to do it the whole way. So that leaves the East, and the caveat is, will Chris Rodriguez's absence for Kentucky last long enough to cost them a game? And I don't know the answer to that right now. Um, you know, do they need Chris Rodriguez to beat Florida? Will he be in that game? Can they win without him? Um, I think they probably can win without him as we're talking today, you know, two weeks before the season starts. Um, the only one I think would, would really have a chance would be Kentucky and right behind them, Tennessee. But that's that's going way out on a limb. I mean, I just think that those two programs have established themselves from a coaching standpoint, from a recruiting standpoint, a player standpoint, that they have the depth to be successful week in and week out in this league. And that's what that's what champions are made of. It's an interesting point on Kentucky because, you know, I think if we were to rank one to fourteen in, in the conference, like a power rankings, I wouldn't have Kentucky third or fourth. Or you right. know, it, you'd have to go down a couple spots, but but it is a, a fair point, I think, because when you look at the schedule, which you know, if we're looking for dark horses to get to Atlanta, I think you have to look at the schedule. Kentucky's schedule draw is is about as decent as you can draw being an SEC team, you know. So it's like if yeah, they win, you know, a showdown with with Georgia, I think it's I think it's a fair point. You can you can look at the rest of the schedule and say, hey, yeah, I think maybe they could kind of sneak through this and and be that dark horse team. So I don't. I, I don't dislike that pick, even though I wouldn't have Kentucky in that spot in my power rankings. I, I can buy that maybe as, as a dark horse team to, to get to Atlanta. That probably changes, I don't know, two years, whatever it might be, two, three years. We're not talking about, well, can I be second best in the East and then, and then get lucky and knock off Georgia? It's who are the top two teams in the league, right? Because it's going to be, however you define it, it's going to be some sort of pod system where there are no divisions. It's just one single table, top to bottom. All right, so the best two teams make it to Atlanta. And I think that's the, the, the more equitable way to do that. So that's another benefit of, of going to that system. Not only do you see each other more often, get to other campuses more often, but in the end, it's, it's not, hey, did you get a lucky bounce on one Saturday and knock off that team that was favored by, you know, six and a half and backdoor your way to Atlanta, whoever gets there will have definitely earned it. All right, Tom, we've run the gamut. We've, we've talked sports. We've specifically talked college football, but I want to close by talking Golden Tee because in, okay. in the backdrop here, uh, as I look at you on video, you have a Golden Tee arcade machine. I know we were talking about this this off, uh, off air before we got going, so I heard a little bit of this story, but I, I, I don't know if I'd say I'm a Golden Tee guy because I think saying you're a Golden Tee guy really it puts you in a, in a certain category, and they think you're, you're going out there playing 18 like six days a week. That's not me, but you know, I could play 18 on Golden Tee and shoot 10, 11 under par. I'm okay. I can hold my own. Uh, where did the Golden Tee come from, and, and what's your Golden Tee skills? Well, this was my pandemic purchase. All right, when the beginning of pandemic, I got back from the SEC basketball tournament after it was canceled, I worked two games on that, uh, what was that Tuesday night? I guess it was Wednesday night, it a, a long time ago. And um, it was canceled the next day, jumped on a plane, flew home. And for the first almost week, I just, like a lot of people sat here in stunned silence thinking, all right, 
I've got 12 different flights canceled. I was supposed to be in Seattle that weekend for the XFL. The college baseball was full swing. What am I going to, what am I going to do with my life? We're going to have sports back. What if we get literally stuck in the house and we can't even go outside? So um, I wasted no time. I said, I got to get something to occupy my time. And I wanted to teach my kids. I got three kids. I thought this would be fun, right? I'm going to teach them golden tea and we can have tournaments and we can hang zero interest. I mean, they're like, dad, the first thing my son said is these graphics are trash. Like, well, yeah, of course. I mean, like you're playing on a big screen TV and you all your anyway. So it's, it's lost on the youth of today. They have, uh, they have no respect for it. But when I was, uh, when I was in college, I was a bartender to pay my bills, to pay my tuition. And in the summer months working in a college town, things can get a little bit slow. And at the end of the night, on a, on a weeknight, we're expected to lights be off and the shades drawn and everything shut down uh, by 1 a.m. in Columbia, Missouri. And there'd be a group of guys in the back of the bar playing Golden Tee that didn't want to leave. Our offer would be simple. You're welcome to stay if we can trust that you're not going to tell anybody that we stayed open a little bit longer. We're going to draw the blinds. We're going to turn off most of the lights. Uh, we might pour a free pitcher of beer. But the cost to stay is that we're going to play a game of golden tea, 20 bucks a man. That's a lot of money to a college student, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of money. And if you want to stay and pay for 20 bucks, then uh, you're welcome to stay. We'll start a new game and play, uh, stay for the life of the game. I, pl- I paid a lot of bills that summer by taking money off of guys in the back of the bar playing golden tea. I, listen, I view it as a win-win. They get to stay at the bar a little bit longer. Maybe they got a couple of beers, and it worked. It worked splendid. We even knew the local police officer who would stop in at, towards the end of the night when we we're supposed to be counting our money. He'd pour himself a cup of coffee. He'd sit down. He'd watch us play, listen to us talk trash, and everything was great until we mistakenly called the bar owner one night when we forgot the security code, and he was wondering why we we're still there at four a.m. If I if I go out and shoot. 10 or 11 under on 18 on golden tee, you're probably taking 20 bucks off me because you're shooting about 18, 20 under. Listen, I haven't played the modern version, right? So I, I don't have the latest updates. I think I think it could be a game. I When we end up in the same town this college football season, that's a pretty good Friday afternoon. You know, finish our meetings. Got some time to kill. We can make it interesting. Great stuff. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to hearing you on the call throughout the season. Tom, uh, once again, thanks for for joining me on the podcast. Again, he's Tom Hart. You can hear him on SEC Saturday night. He's the play-by-play voice on the SEC Network. Thanks again, Tom. Thanks for having me. This was fun. That's going to wrap us up on this edition of SEC Football Unfiltered. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the Week Zero action. And we will be back with you next week.